0: Okay, welcome back. I hope you all had a good uh, lunch and made the opportunity to meet some new people and learn some new things. So we're now back after the lunch and I'm just gonna remind you of all the stuff that's happening that you're gonna miss out on uh, (laughs) if you stay down here. Um, So uh, up on uh, the sixth floor, we are crowdsourcing the Collecting Intelligence Manifesto and we are having a data science workshop on cities uh, where there are three or four spaces left. So now it's time to run up there if you wanna attend one of those sessions but if you stay on here you're going to have a great session looking at how can we use collective intelligence to solve some really complex pro- um, uh, problems uh, working with people in new ways And we've got a great panel chaired by uh, our colleague Gina from the UNDP and we're going to kind of leave uh, Gina to take us through the panel and the speakers so do you want to come up here and then or should we open up with Macy what do you want to do no, sure, yeah, we'll okay okay we'll we'll all go right what's oh, yeah. it Gina it's all
1: oh, right
2: All right, well, we are applying the first rule of collective intelligence, which is more women. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a start. Um, (laughs) Although there is a limit, right? I think Jeff tells us up to 70% is is where the threshold is. Um, (laughs) Thank you, welcome everybody. Um, This is the panel, the world is, parentheses, still a mess. Um, Can Collective Intelligence Sort It? Um, I love the title. (laughs) So I'm joined here by Messi Angelina from Pulse Lab Jakarta um, and Claudia Juch, uh, the founding uh, CEO of Cloudera. Um, So we're going to start off our discussion in a little bit, but we want to, uh, since it's post-lunch, kind of wake you up a little bit. If you can turn to someone sitting near you, and talk a little bit about what do you think is messy about the world? What's your top global worry? Global worry, what's the messiest thing globally? And do you think collective intelligence can sort that out? (laughs) No names, no names. What do you guys think? Can we hear back from you guys? Is my mic on? No, now, it is. <laughs> now it is. Can we hear back from you guys? What's, what's messy about the world and can collective intelligence fix it? Anyone? Lots. <laughs> and can collective intelligence fix it? <laughs> Lots and we'll see. Okay. <laughs> Any specific issues that you guys, please.
3: A lot of the interaction that we have digitally um, is, bo- is both anonymous and uh, only in a couple of dimensions. Mm. So um, if you know that... If you don't feel that it's not, people are going to know who you are, you might feel that you can be more open with being... Trying to trash their ideas, for example. Mm. But we're also talking about how a lot of interaction is only about you know, data or, um, or, or text. And... Um, and if somehow we could connect people's humanity more, so that you're aware that you're interacting with a whole person, or that your, uh, your, your words may have an impact on someone else, hmm. um, that, then maybe that's something that CI can help with, that somehow connecting more of our senses or more of our ways of being intelligent
4: hmm.
3: um, would, would, would improve the situation.
2: Tapping into the full body and sort of mind and in, yes. in the fullest sense. Interesting. Any other issues you guys are worried about and with views on whether collective intelligence can sort it?
1: Nearly got me in stereo then. Um, I think we, we, we spoke about um, uh, polarization, I'm sure, uh, uh, that other people did in terms of uh, the, the mess that we're in. So I won't go into uh, any particular examples. I'm sure we can all think of one or two. Um, but for me, the, the big message that's come out, actually, of, of uh, the events so far um, is we need to avoid the danger of relying on the technology to help us provide the solution. The thing that really makes it fly are the behaviours that we exhibit when we collaborate. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of good old-fashioned human things. They're not particularly technology things. And I think, actually, that that's a really good uh, lesson to take into what I think of as a more human future, given that technologies will increasingly commoditize what we do.
4: Fabulous,
1: thank
5: you. Here? Okay, over there. All right, great. Hi, I've got a problem that I'd love your help with, um, which is that many of our young people feel extremely um, disillusioned and disengaged from decision making. And I think perhaps this is being compounded by social media and the sense that therefore they should be able to have their voice heard on social media so they don't engage in face-to-face, kind of real-life you know, protest marching, um, going door-to-door to try and solve their problems. So yeah, what could we do to address that problem?
2: I'm sorry, Greta Thornberg is not here on this panel. <laughs> she would have something to say about that. <laughs> One more? Maybe two more,
3: sorry. Uh, We were talking about um, the the kind of unforeseen consequences that happen with innovation. Mm. So, like, social media might be an example of uh, uh, young people feeling isolated. So that would be an unintended consequence of of an innovation. And the problem being that, uh, well, as the rate of innovation increases, so does exponentially the rate of problems that kind of fall out. Uh, But the, the real problem was that, the, uh, our ability to innovate is absolutely massive, and we can do that really well and really, really fast. But a lot of the mechanisms that we have for dealing with some of the fallouts are much slower, thinking like sort of legislation that might come in around Cambridge Analytica, or what you do uh, sort of mental health and loneliness as a lot of social media. Those are much more sort of... Uh, the legislative things take forever, the, the consensus things take forever, although maybe that will be expedited after this morning. Um, And those sort of big systemic problems, just they're huge. So uh, they take much longer than it takes to create, if you like, the problems in the first place. But that's very negative about innovation, so uh, I should be very positive as well.
2: Okay, we'll take this uh, last one up up front here. Thank you.
3: Um, Thank you. I think the, the initial statement is pretty much that the world will always be a mess, and that's the nature of humanity. Um, can see I sort it. I'm very much an evangelist in a certain se- sense. Uh, but I believe one area that one of the kind of larger issues we're always facing is inequality, and where you can create a more participatory and inclusionary society, we can start to bring people together, and instead uh, sort of widening the gap currently, as, with, as you rightly said, with polarization, we can start to kind of close that gap, and that's the invitation for people to come and become a citizen, an active citizen, and recognize their, their capabilities and their responsibilities to participate. Uh, and the more that we can do, and I think that's what CI really does very well, uh, can then start to uh, address that major issue of inequality.
2: Fantastic, thank you, thank you. All right, well, um, well, we've got our plate full with polarization and apathetic young people and non-human interactions and mental health and inequality. Um, Luckily, we have a good panel here to explain some of the experiences we've had in using collective intelligence. Um, my name is Gina. Um, I work at the United Nations, so I'm paid by the optimism. So I need to, I need to bring some optimism into this dire scene. Uh, we are very much working on um, achieving the sustainable development goals that all the governments signed up to back in 2015 uh, to do things like end extreme poverty by 2030, end HIV-AIDS by 2030, reduce the amount of plastics that are in the ocean all by, by 2030. So the, the clock is a little bit ticking on that one. Um, At the UN Development Program, um, we have noticed uh, three things about sustainable development sort of looking largely, um, and we're doubling down on collective intelligence as a method to advance uh, solutions for sustainable development. So the first problem is um, that actually we don't know where we stand. So while the government's agreed to 17 very ambitious goals, um, the the data that we have on a a lot of them is sparse. So for about a third of them, there's either no internationally uh, agreed upon way of measuring the progress towards the sustainable development goal or there's no data. So this is really hard. It'll be hard for us to hold um, governments accountable to achieving them in 2030 if we don't know where we are right now. Uh, So we're using collective intelligence to measure the unmeasurable, um, to start to, to work in that area. Um, Secondly, from what we've seen, progress is moving in the right direction, but not fast enough. Um, And it doesn't compare with the accelerated pace of change on everything from the way diseases spread and information spreads and and what have you. So while we think about 20 million people will exit extreme poverty in 2019, it's not enough to eliminate it entirely by 2030. Um, So this is the second thing we've seen. And we think collective intelligence Um, can help with that because we see these problems as very real-time distributed problems that need a kind of bottom-up approach. And then the other problem we have is this sort of new breed of problems. So um, there are 17 goals and 169 targets and 227 indicators, although some of them are not measurable, Um, and even with all all of that, there are problems that don't fit into those boxes or those silos, right? So some of them are around the fact that there are issues we haven't solved and things are getting kind of compounded. So, um, so we see in, in parts of Africa, diseases are spreading faster because of drought. Um, and this is sort of becomes this sort of monster problem. Um, likewise, we have new you know, information on the scene, new technologies on the scene that tend to disrupt um, employment and paths for growth for countries. So this is sort of broadly how we see it. So what we've done is we've set up um, 60 labs around the world, 60 accelerator labs around the world, um, where we will be using collective intelligence to, to kind of break into this problem of sustainable development. Right? We see it as something that is... Sustainable development is something that changes by the minute, by the action. We all make choices that we don't even know we're making when we buy a certain kind of tomato, which is grown in a certain way and took... A lot of carbon to get to us and what have you. So, this interactive nature of sustainable development makes us think it's a collective intelligence problem. And we're hoping the labs that we've set up, um, half of which are in Africa, um, will will make a big chunk, uh, take a big chunk out of this. Um, So, this is my broad intro, but I do want to hear from uh, Claudia. I want to hear from you as someone who's investing in collective intelligence at Cloudera. Um, Tell us why you're doing
6: this. Absolutely. Um, And I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, or telling you my personal story why I got into this space. So in my previous role, I was at the Rockefeller Foundation, and there my team and I were tasked with advising the foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, on where to invest its grant money. And that involved a lot of research, researching questions such as, um, what's the situation when it comes to mit- micronutrient deficiencies of children? Um, where are those children located? Uh, what are really the nutrients that they are missing? And what are, for example, local diets uh, that could be used um, to to really address the problem? And, um, In answering those questions, we really encountered three types of problems. So the first one, and that's building nicely on what Gina just said, I mean, these spaces are moving very quickly, but the information that we had was terribly outdated. It was not uncommon to have statistics that were 10 years old. I think the average was probably five years. So that was the first problem. The second problem was um, the information was incomplete or not representative. So a lot of times when we were looking at kind of broad sweep initiative options that the foundation wanted to develop, We were operating based on case studies that covered specific regions within a country or specific populations. So it was, and with, I mean, you can imagine, the data was not comparable necessarily. I mean, it was not the same types of data that were collected in those case studies. Uh, A similar problem is that often we looked at urban issues Um, urban data with disaggregated national data. Um, And so that, of course, masks a lot of differences between urban and rural areas. And the third problem, probably the easiest to understand, the information simply didn't exist. So I was asked questions in my role where simply I couldn't point to evidence. Uh, I mean, we could maybe point to, to proxies. At the time, to Maybe give you kind of an additional example. I remember reading an article in The Economist about the hard liquor market in East Africa. And I was honestly super frustrated because that article was talking about numbers in terms of consumption of moonshine and market prospects for types of whiskey. Branded whiskey uh, in, uh, in East African cities. And I said I, I, I said, I wished we had that kind of information when we wanted to kind of address micronutrient deficiencies uh, of, of children. And it's really for because of those experiences and others like it that I decided to join the Cloudera Foundation, um, which is a foundation fairly new. You might not have heard of it, but it focuses on enabling nonprofits to use data, uh, data analytics, and machine learning to have positive impact on people's lives and the, and the planet. So you may have uh, noticed um, so far that I have uh, have used the term data, and I will stay on that uh, for just a, a, another moment. So I believe in the availab- that the availability uh, of data and our, our increasing capability to use that data uh, analytically uh, really allow us um, to make progress on um, the complex problems that we are facing. But I want to make a, a kind of a differentiation, building on what people already said in the audience. My short answer to The world's in a mess, and you know, is CI going to sort it? Is it depends, and not alone. Um, So this is not an easy solution to complex problems, um, and it's only a tool um, uh, that that we can uh, we can use. Talking, uh, getting back to the three problems that are outlined. I mean, I see examples, for example, uh, where IoT, so Internet of Things sensors attached to water pump stations in arid areas in Africa, allow to monitor in real time whether those water pump stations are down. That thousands of people often rely on in dry season. So almost real-time compared to, let's say, um, 10 years ago, um, where um, we use now unconventional data, as I've heard heard it called. So mobile phone data, for example, uh, to update census information. Um, giving more recent information and the third one is where information is non-existent that for example our grantee T8 data is using satellite data to support impact evaluations in conflict zones where you simply can't go around and uh, evaluate um, the the success of these interventions so these are promising examples again they are not fully solving the problem because that gets me to. I've been talking about data, but now I would like to kind of make that connection to collective uh, intelligence, because I believe that in terms of making use and and really harness the potential of that data, we humans are are needed. We define really what's the purpose uh, of the kind of the use of data and how and so how and why are we are we doing that, and. The the use of data and also, of course, taking action on that data really requires um, our, our involvement, requires that we apply our values. Uh, and requires that we adhere to ethical standards um, and then ultimately uh, lead to positive action. All of that uh, requires our collective uh, uh, intelligence to really drive drive that. And I think I'll, I'll stop there and maybe come back later. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank
2: you. That's exactly right. I think I, w- I should have said at the beginning, of course, that we're looking at collective intelligence as sort of the combination of Uh, New forms of data, right, that are much more real-time and and produced sort of without us even noticing it. Um, People's input, so, you know, perception data, uh, crowdsource data, you know, assets, skills, all that kind of stuff. And then technology, which helps us process all this. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at all three. And I know, Messi, that you work in pulse lab jakarta I do. um not only with data scientists but also with ethnographers yes is that right so you so, take the people side as well
7: yeah so actually a disclaimer i'm not a data scientist my background is psychology international development i spent most of my career working with grassroots women organizations and in pulse lab jakarta i lead the team that consists of ethnographers human centered designers those who understand that as somebody said earlier it's human behaviors that also shed light on things and Big data can't always give you the answer to the questions like why do people do something. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have this team Pulse Lab Jakarta.
2: And I don't know if you know if you know the background of the Pulse Labs or if, I don't know. Are you planning to tell us? Yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's so the, slides, yeah. the um, mm-hmm. these Pulse Labs were set up um, mm-hmm. after after 2009, at least at the United Nations the global financial crisis uh, caught some of us by surprise. And, and there was this frustration that we were using this five to 10-year-old data um, and not able to sort of see it coming, um, as it were. So, so uh, Pulse Labs were set up in Jakarta and Kampala mm-hmm. and New York. Um, and they've been really like, showing proof of concept, what new forms of data can do, now moving into artificial intelligence, um, really doing incredible work.
7: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So would you like me to go and share some examples? <laughs> yeah, Yeah, show us some, some pictures. All right. So hi, everyone. It's really a pleasure to be here. And as Gina and Claudia has articulated, the reason why PulseLab existed at all is because we realized that there are tons of alternative data sources that are already available. We're talking about things like satellite data, mobile phone data, social media data, IoT, things that Claudia and Gina have already mentioned. But these are considered alternative only to the development sector. This was the genesis actually of why Global Pulse existed. These data sets already exist. They were being used by the private sector to make business decisions in real time, as Claudia also illustrated with the moonshine example. But what about the development sector? Why are we not harnessing these kinds of data sets to work on issues that actually affect the life of millions? So that's why Global Pulse um, existed. We were set out to become a lab of the United Nations that look at these data sets that are mostly owned by the private sector and develop use cases and proofs of concepts about how this could be applied for development and humanitarian purposes. As Gina mentioned as well, there are three Pulse Labs in the world. And Jakarta was the second Pulse Lab to exist. And we've been around since 2012. And the reason why Jakarta was a place where a Pulse Lab existed was because the president of Indonesia at the time volunteered to host it in Indonesia. If we want to look at how alternative data sets can solve problems, then we need to look at places where these problems existed and Indonesia with all of its potentials with unicorns and technology, smartphone penetration, we also have a lot of issues related to inequalities and it would be a really interesting um, place to explore the potentials and limitations of using the alternative data sets. So I think um, the best thing to do is to share some stories and examples about how we usually go about things. And in relation to the theme of the panel, the world is still a mess. One of the areas um, in development and humanitarian sector when conditions are often messy is when a disaster strikes. It was emergency mode. There's a lot of need for information. People need to know where things are happening, who are things happening to, what kind of, in, what kind of um, help do people need. But it's very hard to get information in real time about all of these issues. So the stories I'm going to tell you is some of the um, experiments that we have done to try and solve this issue using alternative data sets and technology in the humanitarian area. So the first one is called haze gazer and this actually happened way back in 2015 when Indonesia had a massive forest fire crisis in some of our islands in Sumatra and in Kalimantan. So peatland fires happen quite often it's been exacerbated by people opening up lands for to make room for palm oil plantations. And they can create massive, massive disasters in the case where the, uh, yeah, the air just turned red and it's very hard to breathe, right? So in 2015, the organization that is tasked to monitor this was the Meteorological Agency of Indonesia. But they get information on the hotspots of where these forest fires are happening via email two times a day, and this is at a rate where, you know, people are actually suffocating, and um, yeah, the forest fire was spreading in a much faster rate. So they came to us and asked whether we can help them find real-time information on where the hot- fire hotspots are. So our first thought was, of course, to harness satellite data because NASA has satellite imagery and it's open source. So we can identify with satellite imagery in real time where the fire hotspots are. But then we also thought, wouldn't it be nice if um, instead of just finding out where the fire hotspots are, we get to hear from people in those areas who maybe are tweeting or complaining on social media, sharing pictures, doing citizen journalism, sharing information about what it's really like to be in that place where the disaster strikes. So, that's why we decided to integrate some features there in the bottom that you can see. These are features where we get um, images from Instagram through an uh, an open API at the time, as well as from Twitter because we have a long-standing agreement with Twitter, some videos from YouTube, and basically, we get to hear what people are saying in addition to identifying where the hotspots are. So we've created this aggregated platform that can be used to monitor things in real time. Uh, Ever since that time, it has been installed in the executive office of the president of Indonesia as part of their situation room. So that's where Haze Gazer could be useful, but then we learned some things. So when I mentioned that we look at social media data, I bet a lot of you are thinking, but not everyone is on social media, right? What about people who are not represented? And it's actually a very good question to ask because, well, when this forest fire was happening, they're happening in the remotest areas where people might not be tweeting, although the signals are there. So what we did after the crisis was sort of um, died down a little bit and we've handed over the platform was that we look at the patterns of the tweets. And what we found were twofold. The first one was that the tweets mostly come from people who are not directly affected in the hotspots, but rather to the nearest capital city in relation to the hotspot. So in other words, these might be the relatives or people who hear from the areas that are affected, but it's not people from that area themselves. Secondly, when we started isolating the tweet data or the social media data only from the areas where the forest fires are happening, we found out that people are not tweeting about being suffocated or needing masks. They were complaining about school times. So this, of course, raised um, some questions in our minds. right? And we were thinking, what's happening in in these areas? How can we find it out? And actually, it really led us to understanding that not everything can be sorted through crowdsourcing. Not all kinds of information can be found out through social media. So what we did instead was that we sent a couple of ethnographers to the areas where the tweets are coming from, areas that are most affected by the haze, to stay with the community for a couple of days, really understand and see what it's like. So doing rapid ethnography to just understand how the communities are functioning and responding. And in relation to the school issue, we found that people are complaining because these the, the worst of the haze is happening in areas where children would have to walk at least for 45 minutes to get to schools. And sometimes when they get to school, they got the announcement that school is canceled for the day, but the kids are, have been exposed to haze for f- at least 45 minutes and 90 minutes if they walk back. And to make things worse, kids don't want to go back home, right? At least when they're at school, they meet their friends. If there's no school, at least they can still play with their children. So what's actually happening is that uh, more children are being exposed to haze and have breathing problems, and this is a major risk. So because of um, being able to talk to humans and understanding these sorts of issues, we understand that children want to play. They don't care as much about the health of their lungs, but they really care about spending time with people they care about. So the idea that we had at the time using human-centered design was, how might we design alternative emergency schools in communities that would still allow children to come Maybe learn a little bit if we can find relevant tutors from the community, but also protect them so they don't become as exposed to haze. And we developed this prototype with some organizations like Copernic, a a non-governmental organization in Indonesia, and it's been tested out in those areas. So this experience really cemented why we need non-data science people in Pulse Lab, and that's why, again, my team existed. But this is not the only um, sort of learning points that we got from doing Haze Gazer. This brings to the next reflection that we had. We also reflected on how when we start to look at keywords and what people are saying about a certain disaster, we are using keywords based on the most used language in an area, right? So in a place like Indonesia with 13,000 islands, there are also tens of thousands of indigenous languages. And people might not be talking in Bahasa Indonesia or the national language. So I think that also raises something to think about, right, when it comes to crowdsourcing. When we're talking about diverse areas and where people are talking about multiple languages, are we identifying the right kind of thing or are we forgetting them because we're not familiar with the languages? So this gave birth to the next project that we did after the forest fire sort of taken care of, and that's called Translator Gator. So our idea was, why don't we crowdsource for translation of disaster-related keywords in local languages, like Malay, like Javanese, like Minang language. And in order to get enough training data to do that, we decided to gamify the process. So what we did was that we created the translator gator game. When people play and they get certain points, they'll get some reward. And I don't know why people think this is a good reward, but the winner, and in the end, the most productive ones, will get to visit the UNDP office in Bangkok <laughs> and in Jakarta. <laughs> so I don't know why this is attractive to so many people. But yeah, <laughs> we got lots of people who are interested and participated. And thanks to that um, and to the gaming process as well, we have a lexicon of disaster-related keywords in different kinds of uh, local languages in Indonesia and in the ASEAN region. And it's available as an open source data set for people to download. Because we know that so many people, so many human Agencies would need them when another kind of disaster strikes. So the other thing that Uh, make us reflect is that, well, when we look at the kind of data that came in HazeGazer, a lot of them were pictures because people wanted to show how bad things are. So with satellite imagery, what you get is the view from the top, right? What's happening from the top, but what about view from the ground? So these are the function of um, the kind of images that we collect through social media because we can see what it's like for people who are there. But then we also thought, would it be possible to sort of now cast or infer the quality of air through these images? And we got this idea also because I don't know whether you know, but Jakarta right now is the number one most polluted city in the world. We have been for about three months. We surpassed Beijing. Um, And the government is sort of in denial about this because there is no government um, sanctioned air quality monitoring system. So we wanted to see whether it's actually possible to infer air quality from social media data, and because we have this plethora of existing data set from Haze Gazer from the forest fire, and also at the time, we we do have the information on air quality from another source, we were able to do ground truthing. So through deep learning, we've developed a mechanism to infer air quality through social media imageries, and with the Rio case, this proven to be quite sound and we're looking for opportunities to apply this to Jakarta. And lastly, HazeGazer is a start, it's a proof of concept. We assembled HazeGazer very quickly because we were responding to a real-time disaster. But the need to monitor disasters as it was happening in real time happened to all sorts of different types of disasters, right? And what people really need is a way or a platform to combine different kinds of information so they're able to actually deal with the logistical distribution of things. So the information that people need would be not only what people are saying about that particular disaster or what news are saying, but what's the condition of the road? Is it possible to get to a place quickly? What are the alternative routes? So we decided to... um, develop in-house a platform that can be used to monitor different kinds of disasters and arrange the logistics to distribute help in that area. And that platform is called MIND. So the idea of this platform is that there's a humanitarian database called GDEX that would send alerts to people whenever uh, disaster of major consequence strikes. So that alert will activate the dashboard, and you'll be able to see what are the news saying, what are people saying in social media, and we added Google search trends because we want to know where people are evacuating, and we found that sometimes people search for airplane tickets to go to a place that they want to evacuate to. So we combine these kinds of data sets along with satellite imagery to sort of provide this information. I would love to tell you more about this in maybe one or two months, because the idea is that we want to open it up for people to test. So if you're interested, please get in touch with me afterwards. So those are some of the examples of collective intelligence work and artificial intelligence work that we do. But then the panel's main question is that whether it can actually solve the world's mess, right? Can, can it help save the world? And I completely agree with you when you say it depends. Because if the problem that we have at hand is not having data and not having insights, yes, it can help. But it's not as simple as it looks. The point of sharing all those case studies with you is to show that we might start it with gazer because of a particular incident. Mm-hmm. But then, if you really think carefully about what you do, it will lead into new ways of looking at people that you missed, or Another layer of the issue that you might have forgotten your first iteration. So data science, collective intelligence, it's an iterative process. And um, partnerships are also very important in this sense. Uh, For for ethical reasons, Global Pulse, Past Lab Jakarta, we don't scrape data sets. What we do is that we establish partnerships with people who are data owners so we can get them anonymized and we don't violate anyone's privacy. It also takes time and effort to build these partnerships, right? So um, that's another element of how collective intelligence needs to be maintained in order to be able to solve real issues. But I think the next level question is all about well, if you have all of these insights and information, is it enough to actually propel people to do action, right? Because evidence-based policy making, as we know, is not entirely how the world works. There needs to be political will. There needs to be commitment to enact on the insights that you get to do something about this. And that's where I think it's a little bit murkier. I know that some of the people here are already working on using collective intelligence to solve this issue. And I would love to hear more about that from you. So yeah. That's all from me. If you want to know more, you know where to find me. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect.
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Macy. I I really love the way that the way your lab is working, kind of opens up this idea about who has knowledge and expertise, you know, about disasters and about Mm. pollution. It's not it's not the, you know, ministers sitting with all the screens around them, it's the people on the ground, yeah. right, who either have a road blockage or can't get the word in time not to send their children to school. So yeah. it's incredible the way you're opening up who's actually the expert in in this field.
7: Thank you. But also to be fair, um, the people in Indonesia, the government, they also understand that it's this kind of information is exactly what they need. They need mm-hmm. to hear from the citizens, mm-hmm. and what we did was just trying to help connect them and find an easier way for people to convey the information to those who need to know, yeah. Excellent, mm-hmm.
2: all right, well we have some time for some <coughs> reflections, questions, answers. <laughs> I guess we'll start running the mics.
3: Thank you, um, I'm from Belgium. I have a question about, uh, because the, the common thing I hear is data, and I think you touched on important points is that you as a pulse lab, you can make agreements with all the big players that actually hoard they are hoarding the data and it can have access to them but I can imagine many many more small scale projects who don't have your power to have access to data and to make a difference and i think uh, maybe this is something at the un level that should be discussed and saying, okay this data should be open right. because it can we don't know when something that is actually being hoarded is going to be useful for some res- uh, resolving some some cataclysm or Or uh, helping people in in some regions. So the question becomes really are we willing, are these companies prepared to share their data so we can actually make actively use and then we can build collective intelligence systems? Because as long as we don't have access to data, we cannot build them, in my opinion. So, what's your opinion on that?
6: (laughs) Do you want to take that, Claudia? Oh, yeah, I'm mic'd up. I'm I'm kind of (laughs) thinking, do I need the (laughs) mic? But uh, I don't need the mic. I don't have an answer per se, but uh, I don't know if Beth Novak is, uh, uh, no, she's not in the room, but I I, I thought she would be here. So she's a co-founder of the GovLab in New York. And uh, she and uh, uh, kind of the the other co-founder of GovLab, Stefan Fairholz, work on how to make proprietary data, so private sector data, accessible to nonprofits. Um, and they do that right now more by kind of reaching voluntary standards. So they are convening people who decide on what kind of data is made uh, available or insights based on data, because often the data is not transferred. Um um, and um, uh, so they, they are working on that. Uh, uh, who are the data stewards in those data-owning owner comp- owning companies mm-hmm. uh, and, and how can we work with them? What are the, the kind of contractual agreements? Because right now, and uh, Global Pulse will, will know this, I mean, it takes sometimes up to two years, mm-hmm. even in the case of an emergency, to get a hold of the data. So how can you bring that uh, that time down? I mean, where, uh, where have probably the same concerns that you have is the, when companies donate data, they are motivated by business goals, um, even though they are doing something good. Um, but clearly, they, they really select what are the projects, what are the, I mean, to your example. Mm-hmm. And so how can we get to a more unifying standard where the unknown nonprofit in, I don't know, Nairobi, Um, can get kind of access to the same or have the same type of access.
7: Um, I'm aware that NESTA is also doing some work on commons, right? Developing data commons. So I think initiatives like this are very crucial, and I'm happy people are starting them, and I think they're absolutely important. Um, Another thing I can share is that you're completely right. Not all of the organizations are able to form these data sharing partnerships. But in issues like humanitarian sector, for instance, or in most of the the cases, what people need are the result of the analysis, the insights that are actionable, right? So one of the data sets that we found very important for analyzing people's movements during disasters are mobile phone data, because it is the most accurate predictor of how people move. But as you can probably imagine, um, telco data understands the value of the data that they have, and they're not willing to share that for free. Mm So what we have done so far is that we understand that it's, uh, the reluctance is on sharing data out, right? Because right now people want to get access to people's data to analyze it themselves. What if we change the equation? What if we work together with them to come up with the kind of algorithms or analysis needed? So when the next time disaster strikes, it's the in-house team in the telco company that can run the analysis and provide the insights for free to the government. So no data needs to actually be transferred. We actually need to get some data set to come up with the algorithm, but that's the end goal that we're working towards. And this is the strategy that we're now trying in Indonesia to bypass that. So I think it's quite important as well to distinguish between needing access towards data sets or whether what you need is actually the it, the insights that come from the data analytics. Yeah.
5: Exactly. We have another question
7: here. Okay, okay. Um,
6: my name is Nizi. I'm I work as an ethnographic researcher and a designer, so I really appreciated that perspective completely. Um, what I thought was interesting is the way you talked about the process and looking at the data, then, you know, kind of more questions arise, and then kind of going out and then doing ethnographic research, and then more questions arise, and you get more data. Um, And it seemed to me that, like, it was really about the questions that you were asking, like asking the right questions in that process um, as you kind of uncover that data. But I'm really curious to know more about that process in having quantitative data with some of that qualitative data and how do you kind of synthesize that together to make some of those decisions?
7: Right, so marrying big data and thick data, right? How does that work? It's a beautiful concept and um, I wish I, I can share a framework with you about how this is done systematically But the truth is, in the lab, it develops organically in a way that I just shared, right? It arises from questions because uh, we work based on concrete issues, the partnerships that arise, and started asking questions. We try to also apply this um, in a more systematic way to other projects. So for instance, looking at the data first to understand where we go. So an an example is um, a, a recent analytics project we did on rural to urban migration. So um, in a lot of communities in Indonesia that are agriculture dependent, there's a lot of seasonal migration. When it's the dry season, people can't farm anymore. They would go to urban areas to get a temporary work. So we want to know where people are moving and understand why they are moving, what kind of jobs they're getting, what are their social networks. Uh, the way that we deploy big data and thick data is that we start by using telco data to identify where people are moving. And when we found the destination areas, that's where we direct the ethnographic researchers to. So that's one. We can use it as a way to identify where we need to go to find more um, questions. But it it can also be done the other way around, right? So another recent project that my team has done is called After Dark. It's looking at women who are using public transportation at night. And we're looking specifically at women who are working blue-collar jobs in Indonesia. Because, for example, malls close at 10 PM. So when people want to go home, they will go home at 10.30 at night. And it's just not true that people don't use public transportation because it's not safe. They can't afford to do it otherwise. Mm -hmm. So we track how they are using um, public transportation. And we found that they do a a lot of stops in non-designated or non-formal bus stops. So we we sort of map um, the areas where those stops are happening. And we're thinking that if we can work with the alternative Ubers in Indonesia, the motorbike-based Ubers are the rage. a lot of people use them. If we can also work with them to identify um, the costs that are happening during those kinds of hotspots, we'll get a better picture about how people are moving yeah, in that particular area. So we can also use thick data to identify potential sources of big data for further analysis.
4: Hello, um, my name is Dirk Wortley, I'm a systems designer, and um, first of all, I found it very interesting because um, I've seen HasteGazer. Gazer, um, beginning of the year, was um, introduced at King's College at a, um, a mapping for humanitarian aid um, event. Um, but... What I would like to ask is, and it's um, maybe a little bit unfair to you as a group, but maybe you have some insight on it, um, because my feeling is that the United Nations, I mean um, all member states, have completely underestimated um, the um, effort and the investments needed to fulfil the data requirement for the um, SDGs. And what we're seeing right now is that in a desperate attempt to catch up, because we're still on the same 2030 agenda, Um, We're trying to shift the responsibility and the task into the non-profit sector, which now leads to a patchwork of great ideas, but no coordinated effort. And um, I have the feeling we're running um, behind not only schedule, but behind our um, aspiration and ambition Um, um, because we don't even know how to measure the impact of the SDGs right now, because most of the data, I can even look it up now, it's from 2015, 2016. I can't even get um, um, specific um, 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 uh, timely data on the international development spendings um, from governments. So not even governments are fulfilling the responsibility. Um, So my question is, um, how can we have um, uh, hope? And um, uh, (laughs) that... um, That what we're doing, actually, our efforts that we're investing into the um, um, SDGs are actually um, leading to something um, great at the end of the tunnel. Because right now, the feeling we can't even tell what's happening. Sorry. (laughs) 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 Apologize for... So um, so
2: you're asking for this pessimistic panel to have some hope. (laughs) At least in the investment of data needs, yeah? (laughs) Any thoughts
7: on this? I don't have a good answer, just an honest one. And I think, well, raising the issues like what you just did is important. And what I notice as well, at least in Indonesia, people are having these conversations, right? So within the UN system, with our government counterparts, we do raise these kinds of issues. I can't tell you more about where it has actually led to. But honestly, acknowledging that that is the status quo, that is the state of the affairs is really important. And that discussion is happening. That's my honest answer. The,
2: the yes. hope that, that I can see, at least, is, uh, speaking within the United Nations, is that, you know, I don't know, six years ago or so, uh, there's a com- there's a kind of group of statisticians all over the world, the mm. national statistical organizations come together. And having them talk about anything other than household surveys was almost impossible at that point. Mm. That has completely shifted now, right? So. There's not this feeling that that's the real data when we go when we ask house to house, you know, are you poor? Are you sick? Whatever, but rather that there are all these new sources of data which are largely owned by the private sector, right? And that's where it's up to you all in a way, um, you know, we can help, but it's up to you all to to hold the companies you buy from to account to say, are you using your data sets for good, Mm. right? are you only selling them to marketers to get me to buy more things, right? Are you sharing them with, you know, foundations and and social organizations that are trying to work with this? Um, Yes, governments as well. I mean, in my experience, at least in the developing world, um, a lot of governments don't yet have regulatory frameworks that govern uh, at least mobile phone data, financial transaction data, et cetera. So this is probably your experience as well. Sometimes the proof of concept that labs uh, do to show the utility of that data for social or environmental projects comes before the sort of regulatory framework which says whose data is this, who can yeah. see it, right? who can share it, and when can you give it to someone. So so there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on here.
6: Just maybe to, to uh, share an additional perspective. Um, I, I mean, I think, both sides are, are true. One is uh, I think that has a lot has happened since the, uh, the SDGs were adopted. On the other hand, I think I, I agree that a lot of the responsibility is pushed onto the nonprofits and that neither the nonprofits nor the national statistical offices in many places have the capacity. I mean, data availability is one point, but I think the uh, capacity to do something with the data is equally or even more lacking. I don't know what's more lacking. Both are lacking. Um, And uh, and that is a big challenge. I mean, I've been uh, kind of been loosely uh, advising uh, um, about twelve large uh, INGOs international non uh, governmental organizations like Save the Children and others who have come come together in Bangladesh and in Vietnam and in a couple of other countries who uh, look um, at uh, under the headline of leave no one behind. So who are the people who are not reflected in the statistics? Because I think the other problem is Mm -hmm. that even if the statistics were up to date and were of better better quality, the ultra-poor that we believe have been left behind by the MDGs uh, are not reflected in the most recent statistics ever. So I'm, I'm just explaining the problem. I'm not presenting a solution, but I feel that The nonprofits hold part of that because they work with these people in in many of the countries. And if they have kind of data collaborations uh, around the the data that they have, um, I think that could shed light on these uh, populations um, with all the challenges involved and with the kind of lack of capacity and funding for these types of efforts. For some reason, that seems to be not a sexy um, Hmm. effort. I think we have time for one more question.
2: So Alex, <laughs> yeah. I'm putting it in your hands.
5: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. It was a very interesting presentation. I, was, uh, I wanted to um, actually build up on the previous question because I think it was not completely addressed. Um, I think now you all exposed very well that uh, we know that the um, the means to do something with data and the competence that are needed are usually located in places that are not the place where the problem definition should be. Uh, and so the, the, the whole point of using collective intelligence, as I understand it, uh, with uh, the UNDP uh, initiative is to make sure that the... Um, the problem definition or the needs are identified at the local level because we understand that to solve these big issues, we need to start from the needs at the local level. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate more on how uh, you invest time to have people at the local level because there's always more local than what we are. For instance, um, uh, the Pulse Initiative is more local than than UNDP headquarters, but it's still not very local, as you described, for the uh, places where the haze uh, take place. So how do you, what is the uh, the approach that you, you have so that um, you are able to get the problem definition and the need definition at the, the closest possible uh, where people are um, and uh, bring the resources there and think about the data you need from that point of view and link that up to your overall goal. Because uh, for me, it's mm. even more than uh, competence and data science uh, you need this problem definition com- uh, competence that is a very different one that you would use as a psychologist or an ethnographist. Or. You have one
0: minute to answer that.
5: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well,
2: then let me, let me put someone on the spot who I'm not sure is in the room. There's a great resource on this question. I don't know if Andy uh, Pauwaki is still here. Yes, he's here. He's hiding. Okay, he uh, has a great concept that he's been working on, uh, works with GIZ called data empowerment which I think is brilliant, because it's all about this question of sort of, at the local level, you need really granular data, right? In order to act, like literally like, which street do I walk on at night? Which bus do I take as a woman, et cetera? Um, But then you need to kind of aggregate this up. The problem that we have sometimes is when we have this extractive approach, right? When we go to, Local communities, and we sort of ask them a bunch of questions, and then we take this information back to our air-conditioned office and think big thoughts with a good cup of coffee, and you know, think about how we're going to help them, right? So, so Andy's concept and the concept that GIZ has been working on um, with data empowerment is fantastic this is about leaving some of the ana- first of all leaving some of the data with the people who whose problem it is, whose lives it is, right? So that they can take action and 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 building on their agency also to analyze it and make decisions on it, right? So, so this is just part of the answer. Sorry, Andy, for putting you on the spot, but it's a great blog on data empowerment. So let, let's maybe close out the panel so we stick to our time. Um, Nicely. Thank you so much, Claudia Yu from Cloudera Foundation, and Messi Angelina from Pulse Lab Jakarta. Huge thanks to Nesta as well. It was a fun conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dina.
0: I don't think there's anything wrong with nice coffee. We're going to have ha- some. For <laughs> 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 um, we now have half an hour for uh, coffee break, uh, and then after the break, you need to make your final decision on what you want to do. So uh, down here, we'll have a great discussion on... Uh, can collective intelligence help us fix some of the many, many, many problems that, that currently exist within AI? Biases in algorithms, and to what extent can we try and work around, work around some of those challenges using the minds of people? If you want to become a crowd predictions expert, then you should go to uh, room 6.1 on the sixth floor, and there's a the fine opportunity to have a first go at the collective intelligence playbook. That's also on the sixth floor in room 6.3. So that are kind of final three sessions. And then you're going to come back here, and then we got the best session, we all have favorites, of the day, which is what we can learn from artists and designers about CI. So it's about getting really creative. And we saved that for last so you'd all stay. And then after that, <laughs> um, there's going to be some drinks outside. Anyway, off you, you go to your coffee. Cheers.